Good morning. There is a desire in every one of us, I believe, whether we're honest with ourselves and we recognize it, or whether we try to ignore it, there is a desire within us to be known by others, to have a sense of purpose and belonging and a sense of of community that goes beyond just the here and now. Ultimately, I think every one of us hopes that five or ten or fifty years from now, somebody will remember us and still love us and still think of us. Throughout Scripture, there's a whole host of people that we think of by name all the time. People who readily come to mind as heroes of faith, as people who lived these grandiose lives. But most often, the people I believe make the greatest difference are the ones who were nearly nameless, who we almost forget about altogether. Today, as we dive into Scripture, we're going to look at the story of a woman who could have been forgotten, entirely ignored. In fact, the story of a woman who has experienced all kinds of hardship because of others. See, as we deal with this idea of being nearly nameless and people who are often overlooked, it's worth noting that faith sometimes sustains us when life is really unfair. That sometimes, no matter how faithful we are, bad things happen to us. Other people do evil against us. And when we're faced with injustice, our temptation can be to point fingers and blame and rise up in righteous anger and indignation. Indignation and declare that these other people are the problem. But as we'll see from this woman today, one who's almost nameless, but not quite, we'll see an opportunity to trust in God even when everything seems to be going wrong. When everything seems to be against you, to see God's good hand at work behind it all. So if you would like to follow along, today we will begin in the book of Genesis, chapter 38. In the Blue Bibles, that's on page 40, so really close to the beginning. Uh, You can find those in the pews in front of you or along the wall upstairs. If you have your own Bible or you want to use your phone to follow along, I don't know what page number that'll be on. Genesis, chapter 38. It's the story of a woman named Tamar. Anybody ever heard of this story before or this woman before? One of you, because I was talking about it at home this week. Okay, thank you, Laura. And a few others in the balcony. Awesome. If you've not heard of Tamar, in Scripture, she's kind of a big deal. Specifically, she's one of four women mentioned by name in the genealogy of Jesus. She is part of the lineage that Jesus himself came from. But Tamar was almost nearly nameless. She almost disappears into the background in the story of Scripture that if you're not careful, you can ignore her story altogether. And I have to give a little warning here. Her story's a little weird upon first reading it. And for parents, if you have kids in here, it's also a story that, like much of the Old Testament, is uh, off the first read, a little bit less than pleasant for kids to read. So here goes. Chapter 38. It happened at that time 
that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hurrah. Now, if you don't know who Judah is, he's one of the descendants of Abraham. I think he's the great, great grandson of Abraham, part of the family of God who's been promised all kinds of great things. And what happens in a little bit, actually, Judah's actually promised that from his family, his direct lineage, will come the king who will reign forever, our Savior. So there's Judah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Selah. Judah was in Jezeb when she bore him. This story starts out like many stories in Scripture. Judah does what he's not supposed to do. He sees an attractive Canaanite woman and he marries her, which they were told not to do, but that's beside the point. He sees this attractive woman, he marries her, and God blesses Judah with three sons. Now, a son is a really big deal. Having a son is, uh, for most people, a promise that your namesake will carry on, that your family will continue into the future. Having a son means that your legacy doesn't stop with you. But as we're about to see, for Judah, his luck turned south pretty quickly. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Yikes. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Again, yikes. See, we live in a culture where this idea is really foreign to us, but this is actually a principle that is later described in Deuteronomy by the same author of Genesis. Moses, he writes about this practice of providing children for your childless sister-in-law. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. The first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. You see, here's the thing that makes this law so strange to you and me. Generally speaking, in almost all cases and all places, sleeping with your sister-in-law is prohibited. Don't do that. But here in Deuteronomy, it's actually commanded. Specifically, if you dwell with your brother and your sister-in-law is childless when she becomes a widow. Why? Well, for many reasons. First and foremost, this was commanded in a culture in which your name lives on through children and through your sons. If you're childless, you are without a legacy. 
there was a sense that it was an honor and a duty to carry on your family's legacy by helping your brother-in-law be remembered and not be extinct. Not your brother-in-law, your brother, I'm sorry. In addition to helping honor your brother, part of this tradition was to honor the woman. You see, in that day and age, if a woman was unmarried or widowed, she was left to her own defenses. She had no way of providing for herself unless either she returned to her family of origin or somebody else would marry her. Now, if she had children, she remained a permanent fixture in the family she married into. So this practice of brother-in-laws providing children for their, un, or their childless sister-in-laws, this practice was actually intended to honor these women. To say, you are not just discardable and replaceable, you actually belong in this family indefinitely. Now with the family of Abraham, that's even better. Because God gave them a very specific promise. I will bless you more numerous than the stars. I will make your children more than the sands of the sea. I will be for you your God and you will be my people. God gave very specific promises to this family that ultimately are for all of us. So this practice of marrying or taking your sister-in-law who was childless and providing her a child was ensuring for her that she belonged in this family of God indefinitely, no matter what. Also, it was a way of celebrating that children are a gift from God and not just a gift from God, but they're actually a God-given right for women. See, we in our culture today have it very opposite. Our culture treats children as a burden and an obligation and a right to not have. They viewed children as a right given to women. Because I don't know if you know much about science, but in the history of the world, there's never been a man who's given birth. Ever. Only women can do that, and it's something unique to them. And so for a woman to be childless to actually deny her this very good gift God wanted to give to her. Continue here in chapter 25. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate my brother's name in Israel. Or his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she, she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. What a strange thing, right? Look, if this man's not going to honor you as a woman, if he's not going to care for you, if he's not going to provide for his family and ensure that you forevermore belong in the family of God, this man deserves to be publicly humiliated and spit in the face. And every time anybody sees him, they should look at this man who is dishonorable and they should say about this man, that man 
is the lowest of the low. Scum of the earth. He's a nobody. See, that's how important this practice was in their custom. Something very different for you and me. So flipping back to Genesis chapter 38. Ur, Tamar's husband, has died. And so now Onan, her brother-in-law, has a responsibility to do the honorable thing and provide for her a child. Now there's a little caveat here. It's only his responsibility to provide for her one singular child. He does not need to have multiple children. This isn't a license to be married as long as you want and do as you please. It's providing a future for this woman and a legacy that will never stop. And so in this practice of this type of marriage, after you bear a child with that woman, that family, the woman and the child now belongs in your family indefinitely, is cared for indefinitely, but it's no longer your responsibility to continue providing children. What's written elsewhere also is that if the brother is not able or willing, or if there are no brothers, the father-in-law can provide a child, if so desired. The father-in-law also has the opportunity instead to release this woman to go and remarry into another family. And I'll tell you here in a moment why that matters. But the father-in-law in this practice could say, you know what, it doesn't make any sense. We can't go about this. We can't honor you in this way. So we release you to go and be remarried and not commit adultery. To go and be remarried and actually join a new family and be blessed by them. Here's what happens in Genesis 38 to Tamar, however. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give her offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. See, Onan wanted all of the joy of the activity and none of the responsibility of bearing a child. Specifically, because of economics. You see, in the custom for Jewish people at the time, the way it worked is when you died, you left an inheritance to your children. And your oldest born received a double portion. So if you had three children, you'd divide your inheritance into four parts, and the oldest one would get half, and the others would each take a quarter. That way they have a double what the others had. Since Ur had no children as the oldest... Onan, now as the second oldest, is now the one set to receive a double portion of inheritance. And since there's no longer three of them, that double portion is bigger than half. It would have been two-thirds of all that his father had. So he stood, if he gave this uh, woman, Tamar, a child, he stood to lose almost 40% of his dad's inheritance. And not just him, but his children and his children's children. So Onan, he wanted all of the joy and none of the responsibility. He wanted to have his cake and eat it too, to do as he pleased. And in doing so, he was doing something very unjust and wrong to Tamar. And God put him to death. If you're tracking, Judah had three sons. And so far, two were wicked and have died. 
as we see in the story, Judah doesn't know the wickedness of his sons, but blames Tamar. Almost like a black widow looking at her and saying, she's the reason these men are dying. I need to protect my third son. It continues. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. See, not wanting to fulfill this responsibility of providing a child, rather than releasing her to be remarried elsewhere, he sends her back to her father's house. Remain a widow. Which functionally in their culture was to say, you shall live out the rest of your days childless and alone in your father's house. And that is enough for me. See, the honorable thing would have been to either release her to remarry or instead to provide for her a child. But Judah does not do what is honorable. In fact, he does something unjust against her. You are doomed to be alone the rest of your life because I refuse to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. So then it continues. And he gives her this promise that maybe he intended to fulfill, but maybe not. He says, look, when my son, my youngest, is old enough, then he will fulfill this promise. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Temna to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hirah the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. See, Tamar sees the injustice being done against her, and she decides to take action into her own hands. Judah is now a widow of his own. He's now without a wife, and in the grieving decides it's time to go and shear my sheep. And part of the sheep shearing process would have been a long and drawn out process, and there probably would have been a measure of alcohol involved and a measure of eating and drinking and really enjoying the fruit of your labor and all your hard work. So Tamar sees an opportunity. If I put a veil over my face, Judah will not recognize me. If I go and I sit at the gate as he's coming and going, now lonely and single and possibly a little drunk, maybe there'll be an opportunity here. Now it's tempting to think that she's intentionally trying to manipulate him and convince him to do something he otherwise shouldn't do. But she's not at all attempting to convince him to sin, rather to fulfill the very obligation he already had, to provide for her a child that she could remain a part of God's family indefinitely. So she goes and she sits there at the gate. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know 
that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. So he names the price in exchange for what I want in the moment. I'll give you a goat. I don't know that that's a fair exchange, but it worked for her. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, give me some kind of promise that I can know this will happen, that you're not just taking advantage of me, give me something to prove that you are who you say you are and you're a man of your word. Do you see the irony here? He's not been a man of his word at all. So far, he's dishonored her in every turn. So far, he's treating her as someone to be discarded, to purchase and pay off in no way, shape, or form as a daughter worthy of honor, as one worthy of being included in the family. There's a bit of irony tongue-in-cheek here. So he gives her a pledge. He says, what pledge shall I give you? And she replies, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So your seal and your cord and your staff, proof that it is you who makes this deal. See, nobody else would have that that signet or that staff. In fact, that staff would most likely have engraved upon it his lineage and the family from whence he comes. Give me proof of your family and who you are, and then I will do this thing. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the colt prostitute who is at Anam at the roadside? No colt prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no colt prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. I love how that story unfolds. They go through the act, he makes the pledge, and then she leaves and goes back to her household where she was supposed to be. And he attempts to make right by sending a goat, but there's nobody there to receive the goat. And he realizes, if I make this public that this lady stole my signet and my ring, that she stole my staff, everybody's going to laugh at me and I'll be humiliated. So rather than lose my honor, I'll just sweep it all under the rug like it's no big deal. Do you see the way in which this story builds one thing after the next? Nowhere in this story has Judah had honor thus far. And yet he's concerned about his honor. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. See, as word has it, when you get pregnant, eventually people start to notice. You can't hide it indefinitely. And when you're supposed to be living in your father's house, a chaste life, alone, alone forever, and you get pregnant, people begin to assume all kinds of terrible things. And that reflects poorly on the honor of Judah as his daughter-in-law. So Judah seeks to restore his honor. This is what he does. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned, as was the law. Prostitution was not legal. This kind of immorality was 
a heinous crime, and so the punishment was death. That's what she deserves. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law and said, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Don't you just love that? She's like, look, I did something wrong, but it's by this guy, whoever this guy is, obviously knowing it was him. Oh, I imagine the humiliation on Judah's face when he sees his signet and his staff being brought before him. Like, this is the one who impregnated your daughter-in-law. And I imagine all of the horror and just how white he got. Oh, no. So then this happens. She says, please identify whose these are. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. I love that. This whole story, Judah, has been completely unhonorable, dishonorable. He's treated her like trash and disposable and not done what was right in the sight of God. And yet, by this act that we would otherwise deem not good and honorable, she helped him fulfill the very promise that he had made from the beginning. The promise to bring her into his family forevermore. As he's concerned with his honor and seeking to destroy those who might ruin his honor, instead he's confronted with the fact that she was more honorable and righteous than he. And it says, he did not know her again. That's all it took. Fulfilling the law of God, doing what was right, would have saved him all kinds of heartache and dishonor and shame and guilt. I really love this story of Tamar because outside of this story, she's not mentioned really until she's mentioned in Jesus' lineage. She's almost non-existent. See, we live in a world full of people who are sinful and broken. And whether you like it or not, I promise you at some point, somebody will do what is dishonorable in the sight of the Lord to you. Somebody will wrong you and hurt you and abandon you and leave you as if you are disposable and do not matter. Somebody will treat you with all sorts of malice and unkindness, all sorts of harsh and rude behavior. Somebody will be unjust towards you. Our natural temptation is to seek revenge for ourselves. To dishonor the other by shaming or by guilting or by proving they're a terrible person. But that's not Tamar's response. Through the heartache and the pain, I imagine through many nights that were sleepless and filled with tears, alone in her father's house saying, will there ever be a future for me? Through all of that, she does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. She remains faithful when it's easy to be faithless. The Lord rewards her. Verse 27, When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. 
Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. What I really love about this story is that one little random ending. Through all of the injustice and all of the opportunity to grumble and complain and to bemoan how terrible other people are, Tamar remains faithful. And in a very bizarre turn of events, God is faithful to her above and beyond what she could have asked for. It was Judah's responsibility through his son or through himself to provide a child for her. But instead, God gives her two. And not only this, Judah had lost two sons through unrighteousness and wickedness. And God restores for, him, for Judah two sons through this righteous woman. See, often when people do all kinds of evil against us, it's tempting to take matters into our own hands. But through the hard and the ugly and the confusing and the difficult, when we trust in the Lord and His plans, that He will in some time and in some way work all things out for the good of those who love Him, when we hold fast to that, whatever today may hold, I promise you He will always restore what has been lost. Maybe not in this life. Maybe not in the time frame you hope for. But in Christ, all things will be restored. In Christ, one day, everything that is unjust will be made just and right. And you and I who were once sinners and far off and alienated from the family of God will be deemed righteous. And so we hold fast to this faith and we trust in this promise whatever today or tomorrow or the next may bring. Because regardless of it all, He truly is a good Father who loves us wholly. Will you pray with me? God, we thank You. We thank You that when this world is unjust, You are just. When this world is unrighteous, You are righteous. When evil people sin against us, You have promised to bear all sin upon Your shoulders. We do not always understand the path we're walking through the pain we're experiencing, or the hurt to come. But God, You are good. Like tomorrow, may we trust in You every day. May we believe that You will restore all things that are taken from us. God, whatever tomorrow holds, may we find ourselves walking hand in hand with You trusting in your faithfulness when everyone else is faithless. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.